You're listening to the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan of the Sunday Independent, and today my guest is Michael Harding. Merry Christmas, Michael. And Merry Christmas to you too. Michael, take me back to December 8th, 2018 at 8am. Was it 9am? You had a near-fatal heart attack. It was 9am. Yeah, yeah, 9am. On, on the 8th of December, which is a, a feast of the Mother of Jesus, which is very important. But uh, on that day, I had pains in my chest for about two days pre- pre- previous. And I was doing like stage shows in Bray and in Blanchardstown. And eventually the pain got so bad and it became a kind of an explosion in my chest. And I knew what I had been denying for about two days. I was having a heart attack. So I phoned the emergency number 999. I got through in about a second. And I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they said, where are you? And I gave them the hotel name and the room number. And it took them about, I would say, less than 10 minutes to come through the door of the room. And if I had been in somewhere like Roscommon, where it might take 40 minutes to get there, I probably wouldn't be here. What was be- going through your mind in those 10 minutes? Oh, nothing, just pain. <laughs> nothing deeper philosophical. No, no, just, just pain, just like... There's a way that pain focuses your mind and fear of death focuses your mind beautifully. No, you don't think of anything else if you're drowning. You, you just become your body. And I, I had become my body, but my body was like just a kind of a, a sensation of pain, of kind of an ache. And, and did you have a fear of death? I felt like a tree breaking. Yeah. No, I didn't have a fear of death at that moment, but I, I think, you know, fear of death is like a mental construct in your mind. What I'm saying is that in a crisis like drowning or having a heart attack, I guess that you don't have mental constructs. Your mind actually goes down into your body. Your mind kind of really becomes the flesh and blood and bone of your body. And and you just experience pain. Yeah. Yeah. And um You said afterwards that perhaps you didn't fully know how to open your heart until to the world until you had the heart attack. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, the, the ego, we all have the old ego and uh, we all talk about transcending the ego, you know, and let go of the ego and be yourself and all this crack. But we kind of never really do fully, you know, because, because the minute you name what you're trying to do, you become something else. You become another persona. There's kind of, it's like an onion or like a, you know, the, the Russian dolls, there's always another ego inside the ego that you let go of. And you get people, for example, who uh, get transformed by, let's say, religious experience, and they tell you, oh, I was a very bad and selfish person, and now I am saved, I have awakened, right? I am now a Buddhist or something. And they're clenching this new ego of being a Buddhist tighter than they used to clench the old ego of being, let's say, a good man in the bank or something, right? So the layers of... Ego go in and in and in and in, and, the, and they may just go in forever, you know, one doll inside another. Uh, so you're always saying things like, well, I open my heart to you, but you never really do. And I think that what uh, the sense of death, fear of death, or the kind of experience of serious illness, I think what it does to you, it really kind of allows a deep level of your ego to wither. 
And you do have an opportunity. You have an opportunity in illness to become new, to become a little bit more fresh, a little bit more open-hearted. And so uh, I really felt it like that. I was, felt it, was the universe or God giving you a chance to cop yourself on? No, let, let, leave God out of it for a minute now. But just, just take it as a psychological condition, as an experience of ego and the way that trauma kind of forces your mind consciousness into your whole body. Your whole body becomes pain. Well, in an, in an accidental way, you've actually let go of your ego. And if you can kind of deliver on that for the future, you can find illness to be transformative, no matter how painful and how dark it is. And I think that is a huge point. Susan Sontag talks about it in a beautiful book called, uh, I think it's called Illness as, Met- as Metaphor. Many years ago she wrote it. Uh, how we can transform ourselves through illness, no matter how dark it is, no matter how we suffer in it, no matter how it's like, it's not very nice somebody saying, oh, well, you know, your illness is a metaphor, it'll be fine. I don't mean it like that. I mean it in my own experience. How did it transform you then, or did it? Well, maybe maybe people would look at me and say, he's still talking, it hasn't transformed him, he's talking bull as he always did, so what's the difference? But there's always a sense of freshness in your new day. You know, you go asleep, you go kind of into the unconscious and you wake up. And I think illness is the same. So maybe when I say at the start of that book, Chest Pain, uh, I thought I was living, you know, lo- a loving life from the heart, but but maybe I wasn't. And in fact, I think in the sentence I used the maybe, I say maybe I wasn't. Uh, because it's the hope that from this heart attack that I had in 2018, I could really transform myself. I could really try and be a little bit better as a human being, a little bit more open, a little bit less guarded. You know, I remember when I was young, and that's an awful long time ago because I'm 66, but I mean, I remember when I was about 21 and I had a a beautiful woman girlfriend at the time. She was an American, and uh, we were very close to each other. And we split up uh, only because she had to go back and finish her studies in America, and I wanted to go and teach in Ireland. So that was the end of that. But years later, I met her, and I said, was I an awful person back then? And she said, you had a ring of steel around you. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have that ring of steel? I hope not. But there's, there's, there's I, I a... hope not. But I mean, I, I, I'd say I do. But you're leaving a whole pile out of that story about the okay. American woman. I mean, one of the interesting things was, was it 90, 1971, you went to, to study to be a priest? Yeah. And after a month... I went. The university opened. All the women arrived. Yeah, and you yeah. realised that the game was up. Yeah, about that. Yeah, I. I mean, let's say um, I studied to be a Christian priest. I have to say, I studied to be a Christian priest because, again, we don't want to be ethnocentric, and so there's priesthood and all those other traditions as well. So let's say, in the Christian tradition, when I was about ten years of age, maybe ten, maybe this is different now from in the book because it changes in my memory. But I, I, I have this deep sense of having a vocation. I, I have this deep sense of awe. Oh, the, the only two things I wanted to do in life, one was write poems and the other was pray. Like being in the little oratory in St. Patrick's College, Carvin, uh, in the silence of it, in the emptiness of it, with the red sanctuary lamp, lamp hanging above the altar, where you could almost hear the tick of a clock in the distance or you could hear the kind of distant screams from the GAA football pitch away out at the other end of the college grounds, right? I never played GA football. I, I never togged out in my life. In fact, I did tug out once for 10 minutes and after 10 minutes on the pitch, I think his father Hurley was his name, he said, Go home, Harding! 
And that was the end of my GAA career. Was it, so was I it, devoted myself to praying. Was that as painful a 10 minutes as the waiting for the ambulance? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It was because waiting for the ambulance was a strange emptiness. It was like a, a kenosis. It was like, it was like when your mind goes into your body in, in suffering. If, if you're depressed, if you're physically ill or physically in pain, and I've only this one little intense moment of it with a heart attack. But I think that your mind really goes into your body. There's no other explaining this. You, do, you become a sensate being 100%. And so in that sense, there's a sense of urgency to live and to, to reconstruct the mind in a new way. But I don't think there's shame. Yeah. There's no shame in that. Whereas the painfulness of being an 11 or 12-year-old on the football Just pitch. Just go back to that then, yeah. And getting your little short tugs on in the terribly smelly dressing room, like the unbelievable stench of the changing rooms in a boys' secondary school back in about 1966. Pretty intense. And you come out on the pitch with your, you know, football tugs and your shirt, your boots and all the rest of it, and you're trying to get a kick at the ball and you're running like a, a buck donkey up and down trying to get the ball off somebody and eventually you hear the guy you really revere, respect and admire, the trainer, shouting, Go home, Harding! Has <laughs> that haunted you to this day? Ah, no, no. <laughs> but, no. The, but five years later, that was 66, five years later you, you were going to be a priest in, in Manuka. I did, yeah, because, because as I said, there was two things that really absorbed me. And one was uh, genuinely... Solitude, wasn't it? Yeah, prayer. Like a sense of being solid. Being alone and realising that silence, when you're completely alone that silence is like a dialogue. With who? I don't know. Maybe with nobody. But that's the, that's the experiential description that I can give you. And that, you know, I, I can't say any more than that. Like, I see a fella this morning walking down the street, right? And he's talking Italian on uh, just out here, not Grafton Street, the other one, Kildare Street. And he has the two white earbuds in his ear and a little, lovely white little laced thing coming down into his chest pocket where he has his, obviously his phone and he's obviously talking to his beloved or his child or his friend in, in Italy or some other Italian in Dublin and there he is, dancing away, talking away and his, his face is open. Now, he's walking down Kildare Street and there's nobody on Kildare Street and he doesn't have a problem with that and you don't and nobody does but in fact we're walking around all the time in one reality engaging with other realities. It, it's almost like the mind is split in in two levels, that, that the condition of the mind is able and tends towards concentration at two levels. We watch things in the surface reality and there's a bit of the mind that then watches the watcher. We're aware of ourselves doing it and we can turn that bit over to, let's say, virtual conversations, virtual engagement. Now, his, whoever he's talking to probably exists I don't know about the word God, but I certainly know that in prayer and silence, the same dynamic in the mind works. So it's not kind of some hocus pocus. Yeah. I don't believe in God as that. You know, I don't believe in God. I, I, don't, I don't get that idea of God as being some sort of extra human, extraterrestrial guy with a big beard with buttons up in a glass room in the universe. But you were ordained to be I great. just use the word God yeah. for human experience. Human experience. Because, a lot, a lot. because religion is a human experience. Yeah. Wis wisdom is the evolution of the human community. Do you think religion is a good therapy for humans? I do, yeah. 
I do. <laughs> yeah. If it's taken as therapy, it's very interesting because sometimes gestalt therapy is good for you and sometimes family therapy is good for you and sometimes religion is good for you. But some therapy might not be good for you. Do you know what I mean? Like you might, I might go to my counsellor and she might say to me, do you know, there's a nice, there's a good gestalt weekend. Uh, it might be good for you. And she might say, uh, there's some other type of therapy going on, but it wouldn't be good for you. So in other words, whether therapy is good for you doesn't, it's not a universal statement. It's good for everybody. There's a lot of different therapies on the shelf and one of them may suit you at a certain time in your life. Yeah. And I think that gradually what's, what's happening in kind of globally is that religion is getting situated properly on that shelf of selective therapies, of practices that you can use for mind training that helps you live better in the present moment, in the here and now, live you better in relationship with the people you love and engage with. If religion does that for you, of course it's good, yeah. Yeah. You, you said that the only teaching is that there is no teaching. Well, yeah, I'm quoting like the Heart Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> does it really? Yeah. Well, do you know something? That is how terribly weak intellectually Monty Python is. There's something, you know, hugely facile and inane about the kind of, if you like, smarmy irony of late 20th century Anglo-Saxon culture. Yeah. Would you buy that? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. You know, it's 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 like it's like a joke you can get away with with secondary school guys. I, I you think know. what you actually said was the ultimate teaching is that there is no teaching. Well, it, the Heart Sutra says this. Yeah. And it, it, it's simply the idea that teachings in, in religion, whether it be in any of the great religions, teachings are mechanisms to train your mind towards being healthy and happy in the present moment with other people. They're all universally they follow what I think it's one of the Greeks. I can't say whether it was Aristotle, Socrates or Plato, but the, the famous golden rule. Who, who said the golden rule? The golden rule was love and compassion. This was a secular kind of psychologist, if you like, in the Greek tradition, which itself is a religion as well. But they were saying, look, the bottom line is love and compassion. The bottom line is the more you let go of your ego and the more you actually allow your mind to focus on the other person, the happier you become. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the bottom line of every single religion uh, in all the great traditions. That's really what they're trying to tell you. In, in Buddhism, they tell you this and they make a very subtle point because I think that the Chinese and the, the Buddhist tradition is very skillful sometimes. And that's a word that Confucius used. He would say that is skillful. He wouldn't say it's true. He'd say it's skillful. Because it gets you there, right? It, it gets you into the present moment in a, in, a, in a right relationship to reality. But I think that one of the things that we're very skillful about was naming the danger that... If, okay, if you name the bird, you cease to experience the song. The very naming of things in the human mind always leaves us at a distance from it. It's never quite, it's never quite what you said it is. Somebody says, how are you feeling? And you name how you feel. And after five minutes, you're thinking in your head, well, that's not really how I feel. Yeah. It doesn't cover it, right? 
And so the danger is that if you have somebody who is grasping, let's say, money, power, fame, whatever, uh, the problem is they're grasping. You know, their, their ego is kind of really tight. Imagine their ego like a little a kind of a, a little cartoon with big claws. And yeah. the, the claws are clenched into fists. That's like, I believe in making money. Right. I believe in being famous writer, whatever. Now, so somebody like that gets a big religious moment and they become, let's say, anything. I don't want to name different religions, but like any of the great five pillars of world religions, they join the new group. And the next day they say, I have completely overcome my ego. I used to be a banker. I used to I used to be so greedy and I wanted to be a famous writer and win prizes and all that. And I'm not that anymore because I found Jesus. Are these people more annoying? And and then and then they're gripping G they're gri- gripping the teaching. What we can I ask you what you, we, I, 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 can you give you one I give on. you I'm sorry now, I'm really annoying you. But <laughs> I have to tell you this one. I was up in Schellig Michael about two years ago. And it was, for me, a very deep and beautiful experience. And I, t- I wrote about it in a book called On Tuesdays, I'm a Buddhist. But there was one mo- wonderful moment when when you get to the top and, and it's OPW are watching everything and you have to be very careful and you can't, you know, bring anything like food into the little cells that are at the top where the monks used to be. You can't, obviously, you know, light fires, candles, you know, you have to be really reverent to this place because it's an ancient heritage site and the little beehives are there. You get to the very top. I'm going around the beehives and I go into one of them and there's a woman sitting there and she's in the lotus position, uh, beautifully poised, um, with a little candle in front of her, lit. And I said, um... You're not supposed to light candles. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist this, you know. And she just turned to me and said, I can't say this, though. And can I say Go it? Go on, say it. She just turned suddenly and said, whatever, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, God, she's gripping that meditation session very tightly, right? So people start believing in teachings. They believe in Buddhism or believe in Jesus or believe in Islam with a clenched fist. And what the Heart Sutra is saying is that the ultimate teaching is there is no teaching. Yeah. Even when you found the teaching, you must know that being, if you like, being with God transcends that too. Be, being with God you, transcends God. You said after the heart attack, you you were drawn back towards the Christian faith. Yeah, is, is that is that you now, or is that? Ah, it is me now for the minute. Yeah, I've I've had a wonderful year, uh, praying away with icons, you know, uh, since the heart attack. What's it like for your wife to live with that? Uh, she doesn't live with that. I mean, give us a break, you know. Man plays golf, you know. She's not going around with the caddy. You know, there are things we do as humans, male or female, and we don't necessarily bring our wife in there. Yeah. So it's just something I do. It's like a hobby. But just... Religion. Can I just ask you, 71, you went to become a priest. It didn't work out. You saw women. You you went in that direction. Yeah. 1981, you were ordained as a priest. Yeah. You retired from the ministry in 1985. You spent 20 years practicing Buddhism. Yeah, like, again, not in robes or something, but yeah. as, as a great obsessional hobby, I would say. You know, I mean, I, I lived a normal life, yeah. rearing a child and trying to survive in Leitrim and being a writer. But if you said to me, you know, do you play football, golf, or what's your hobby? I said, well, I, I just go over to Champaling, the Buddhist place. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the communal life of it, the talking to people, the meditation sessions, reading up on 
also. And I went to Mongolia. Uh, I, I covered two and a half thousand miles in Mongolia in two jeeps with the uh, Lama, the Panchanutral Rinpoche from Bonboy, Tibetan man. We had nine monks and sisters with us. I was extraordinary. I was the only, there was only one other European in that whole journey. And it was really, really intense. And when you were a priest, you, you had various liquid lunches with Bishop Eamon Casey. What was, what was he like? Bishop Eamon Casey. Um, in Galway, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I talk about this in the book, Chest Pain, I refer to it, because I felt I had to say, you know, I didn't know him. I didn't know him personally, but I, I got on a committee, you know, that was advising the hierarchy on youth policy. And so there was about, I think, I think there were quarterly meetings, right? So there was about three meetings a year. Uh, and you'd go over to Galway and you'd sit down for this meeting with about five or six other clergymen and the boss man would be Eamon Casey, the bishop. And he'd kind of get through the agenda over a leisurely coffee when people would arrive in the, in the huge big drawing room. And it was the biggest drawing room I'd seen in a private house. So, like, you know, it was as big as a hotel draw- foyer. Do you know what I mean? There was, if you have more than two sofas, you're fe- doing fears well. We don't have that in Leithrop. Um, Actually, we do now, I'd say. You have two sofas? No, we don't. But, oh. like, I'd say now I'd be yeah. insulting some of the wealthy people in Leithrop to say they don't have two sofas. But anyway, uh, sitting there, and we're all having the coffee. And then uh, he might say, would you, you know... We'd get, we'd get kind of the, the, the meeting done in about 40 minutes. It wouldn't take too long, from about 2 o'clock to 3. And by then, you'd be on the brandy. How long would the brandies be? Be about an hour. You might have, I'd have two. And I'd be swinging out me cut glass there, like if there was, if I saw the bottle moving around, I'd say, oh yeah, I'll have another bit drop. You know, now there'd be people in that room weren't drinking, to be fair to them. And uh, Was Annie Murphy in the room now? I know, I know. She wasn't an ordained priest now. <laughs> we knew nothing about about his private life. We knew nothing about that. But I'll tell you something about him. Anyway, th- those meetings were interesting. But what they were interesting about for me was there was a kind of an inflation in Casey. There, there was a kind of a sense. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, he 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 seemed to exude a great. When he went on the Late Late Show, uh, they loved him on the Late Late Show. You know, people re- rewrite history. That, you know, what happened on the Late Late Show. Casey used to be on the Late Late Show, adored by everybody. Did right? you adore him? No, I didn't. Why did you? You're you too young, I, was, I suppose. But, You're only a child at the time. No, I didn't adore Why him. Why didn't you adore him? He was completely remote to me at the time. I mean, I adored Michal McLeamor on the Late Late Show. That's who I adored. Yeah. I can still remember Michal McLeamor talking about the Irish language. He said, it was like... Is it is like a mother dying, but you still want to be by the bedside? <laughs> he was beautiful. And I I remember Siobhan McKenna and I adored her on the late late show. She was she transformed my life. To Did hear you? the way that she could put emotion into words. Oh God almighty. And I was maybe thirteen years of age, fourteen. And another one that I loved on the late late show. I can't think of the name now. Can you do the voice? No. <laughs> but anyway, where where was well, you, you talking about? Did you um obviously uh, Casey didn't keep his vows of celibacy? Did you? Uh, well, let's hold on a minute now. I remember what I wanted to tell you about Casey. Go on. Like when I left 
I retired from the clergy. In 85? 85. And you met your, your wife-to-be in 84? Yeah. Um, but I retired from the clergy in 85. And for because I was on a committee, because I was associated with your man uh, on those brief meetings, you got a Christmas card. And I, in being naivety, used to like the Christmas card. I used to think, God, I must be somebody. I mean, Casey, the bishop is writing the way, right? Now, when I retired, I wasn't leaving the priest at a no crisis of faith, but I was taking a position that was dissenting in relation to the church. It, it was suddenly I became somebody who was liable to be trouble, right? And immediately that Christmas, I waited every morning for the postman. But no Christmas card came from the bishop. How did that make you feel? <laughs> made me feel sad for him. It made me feel sad that somebody was so so much afraid, so much afraid afraid of the authorities, that they would have to cut you off their Christmas card list. And and that was a fear I think was in clergy at the time, which was hugely connected with why they kept their mouths shut when there was child abuse going on and they knew about it. It was fear. And the fear was being caused by the sort of conservative papacy in Rome and that huge organisation and its tentacles in every diocese in the country. You know? So, I mean, I think that's a huge story. I've written about this endlessly. You know, I've nearly every book I refer to it. I've done Unapuka, misogynist. I've done plays about it. Um, There was a fear that created a tyranny in the middle management of the church. And that tiny little straw showed me where the wind was blowing in 19, what did I say, 85, where, you know, you were on a a mailing list and just because you went to a position of dissent within the church, you were off. But that's nothing compared to all the theologians who were on the bookshelf in Manute. And within two years of the man, the Polish person, Karl Wojciech, becoming Pope, Within two years, every single one of those theologians was taken off the shelf and banned. I, I, I said that many times as a kind of a, an example of intellectual fascism. And yeah, I suppose people, it does, theology doesn't matter to people, I suppose. That's it. But I mean, Hans Kung and Schillebeck and Gutierrez and Segundo and oh, big, long list of them, Leonardo Boff, all these wonderful, extraordinary intellectuals. We're all just out. <laughs> would your books have been banned on no, the shelves no. as well? No, they wouldn't because I, I'm writing stories. Parables. And I'm writing stories. I remember actually there was a funny thing happened. Somebody told me, uh, they asked a bishop one time, what do you think of Harding? This was when I had retired and started writing books like Priest and plays like Misogynist. And the bishop said, oh, he's only a poet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And eighty five, yeah, you'd started to f- you'd fallen in love with with Cathy, haven't you? At that stage, I did. Yeah, uh, did that re- reinforce the whole theory of misogyny and and like you'd defo- you're in love with a woman in the church? No, uh, I I didn't see I didn't see celibacy. I didn't see celibacy as a problem, but I didn't see sex as a problem either. You know, I, it, it wasn't sex either; it's, it's relation relationship. You know. Uh, I always thought that I would be married as a priest. That was a very reasonable expectation. I know that people don't know. History was rewritten. The The story of clerical sexual abuse has become 
the story. That is really the only thing that matters now. That's how that, that sexual abuse, in a sense, destroyed the church. But the church in the 1970s was really very strongly driven by the sense of renewal in the Second Vatican Council, uh, by the ideas of John XXIII, and by liberation theology. And that had brought to light uh, priests who were government ministers in Nicaragua. It had brought to light bishops like uh, Romero, who was so threatening to the right-wing pro-American government that they had to kill him. And many, many nuns in Guatemala and catechesis were being shot by the army. Would you not have been that, that was the church that was there in, then. St- stay as a priest to try and change it from within? No, because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to have a loving life. So, I mean, I realised the bus had reversed itself into the 19th century. So fine, I, I got off the bus. It wasn't a big Where deal. Where was your bus going? I walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's, it's like, do you know what I mean? I didn't have issues with, with, with celibacy. I didn't have issues with, with married priests. The, the Orthodox, you were asking me about the last year, and I've, I said I had a great time with icons and praying. I find that the Orthodox Church has levels of aesthetic beauty which are absolutely... They, they, they rend my heart with, with their beauty. You know, the icons and the music, the music of Rachmaninoff, the, the vespers of Rachmaninoff. It's just... This is a culture that's, that's a living, throbbing, aesthetic jewel in the world, you know, and... And I tapped into it in the past year, uh, doing the old orthodox things like, you know, praying and meditating. Who are you but, praying to? Uh, nobody. Praying is a dynamic of the mind. You know? Yeah. I, I don't believe, I can't say that I believe in God. I know it sounds really crazy to say I don't believe in God, but I don't really. You know? I mean, I mean, somebody asked me last night, uh, you know, well, 19... 19- 84, you left the clergy, and 1980, no, 1984, you met, I did. You met the lady <laughs> wife. Did she, I, did she drag you did, did you Did you leave God, you know, did you abandon God for the woman? Or, and uh, I, I, I said to that person, she is God. Yeah. She is God. I don't mean that any facetious way. What was if, it like? if you don't find your child is God, then you're really in trouble. Yeah. If you don't serve, you have to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said. So you've got to serve somebody. Now, you serve your wife, you serve your husband, you serve your man, your woman, whatever. You've got to serve somebody. There has to be. And we live on the inside or the outside. On the outside, we're on the surface all the time. On the inside, we create templates. Our mind creates templates. We, we construct them. People who live in secular worlds do not live with that function inoperative. That function of creating templates continues so that people who live secular lives without prayer are still living with demons and angels. And sometimes they get possessed by demons in ways that would scare the pants off you. Look at racism, look at the growth of anger in Europe and how it kind of can possess people. Like their faces change and they're there telling you that they don't like somebody because they come from a different country. Right? Well, this is this is... This is, look, you know, in psychological terms, in psychoanalysis, this is demons. You know, you'd say, we'd all say it. Jesus, there's a demon in that pie. Okay. So that sense, how the mind constructs these templates within is like a function of the mind. All I do is try and ride the horse gracefully so that when you construct templates that are... Uh, that have a functionality of, of allowing you to be loving, 
and compassionate and forgiving, then these are healthy templates. And if you're not using them in religion, I've often been with the, with the therapist in the same way, and she would actually use various sort of dialogue, uh, kind of play, uh, role play things, so that you can kind of dialogue with some sort of internal person. And a therapist would say, well, your inner child needs love. Yeah. Or maybe the, your, your, your mother didn't love you enough, but, but in a sense, you must be mother to yourself now. These are exactly the same mental constructs as I'm using if I kneel or stand in an Orthodox church and open my heart with the idea of the mother of Jesus in front of me. It was also, was it a construct that you used that you said that depression was like an uh, an open door for you? Yeah. A door opener for you? Yeah. H- explain what, what that is. I don't, I don't, I can, it's hard to explain, but I, and I know that other people have explained it better. There are therapists who explain this much better Um but anyway, uh, you it, said you were like you were it's simply being that broken, but that there's a liberation in being broken. There's a growth, you know. There, there, there's a way whereby, if I become depressed, there are two possible ways to go here. One is that it's clinical depression based on physiological stuff and needs medical and chemical attention. Okay. The other is that it's it's from trauma or damage or psychological wounds that have happened to you in 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 the past. So so there's two in your live in this past or yeah oh no in this past yeah. yeah in your life. So there are two foundations. But in the creative dynamic of trying to escape from that, you you use whatever therapy works. And in my life personally, I found that. Thinking about this as an opportunity of growth, I found that very helpful. That, that like... Even when you couldn't get out of bed, was it 2011? I, I, 2011, I, I spent, there was about a year and a half where I, I really barely got out of bed and I'd wander around the house and if my, uh, if my wife had had a tough time, that would have been the tough time because, you know, it would have been hard living with somebody who was taking so much and giving so little. You know, I was just like lying there. But I would say to her, will this end? Because one of the terrible fears I think people have in depression is that it won't end. Why did it start? I I think with me it started initially because I burnt myself out. I was doing a show called The Tinker's Course. It was a one-man show. And I really, I really burnt myself out. So, like, I, I had an ongoing chest infection. I was taking steroids. I was taking antibiotics for about three months, which I shouldn't have been doing. I, I was just at it. And eventually, my stomach exploded with colitis. And uh, I got over the colitis, but I was left really kind of wounded after it. And in that wounded time, I just went into depression. I, I, I felt, you know, it was a real kind of... 90- so, does physical pain bring your mind somewhere? I think at that time what I'm saying is that after the physicality of burning out and having colitis and another operation and something else but uh, I just went through a period where I felt I'm finished you know I'm I can't go on I've no energy I, I you know I'm trying to be a writer I'm trying to do the I, I'm absolutely burst right and I was what um trying to remember what age I was, about 58. So it was right just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finished. But 
There's a book called The Swampland of the Soul. By being in the stench of the sewer of your yeah, own psyche. Yeah, yeah. And rather than be negative about that, that, that's one of the torments, again, of depression, is where you, you're depressed because you, you don't feel like going out and meeting people. But then it doesn't just stop there because you have a voice in your head tormenting you for not going out. There's a voice in your head saying, look at you lying in a bed. You have eejit you. You know what I mean? And it, that really is the crucifixion, that negative voice. And it, it seems to nearly take over your mind, your, your whole consciousness. Like your whole consciousness when you'd wake in the morning would be this negative voice. From the first second you'd open your, mind, your eyes, that, you know, oh, your body is not working well today. Oh, you forgot to take your tablet last night. Oh, you have a pain in your back. Oh, you know, negative, negative, negative. Do you want to go out and meet people? No, I don't. I want to stay here. And then you close the door and on your own, the voice is saying, look, what a stupid idea that you'd stay here. Sure, if you'd gone out, you would have been enjoying yourself. Now you're here. The negativity out of control. Is, Can is I ask what, you a question? Is, I think that is one of the really big torments is there, is there for, no... for people who are in depression. And it gets so bad. I have to finish this one, but Sorry. it gets so bad. There, there's a really good exercise. And I used to have to do it. And it was, I think it was called like a body check. It, it was like you had to just try and breathe. And from the breath, try and become aware of, let's say, your foot, your left foot. Try and become aware of your right foot. And gradually do that up through your whole body, up through your, your chest and your neck and your head, until you actually were able to pull together a mental construct of consciousness that was normal, that wasn't being infested by this negativity. Is that what brought it to an end? It, that brought it to an end for five minutes, but I mean, I, I had what got you probably out of the bed six then? months of that where what it was got you out of the bed horrible. And kept you out of the bed? Uh, other people, I suppose, in the end. And, and maybe, it, maybe there is a level of healing that goes on, you know, that, that time spent in the dark, time spent in depression, is actually recharging. Is that the door opener? Possibly, yeah. Is, was there not, with all the negative voices, was, could you not have drawn, easier said than done, in all the 20 years of, of Buddhism, and yeah. the, all the years of being a priest, is there, was there nothing in that you could have drawn on? There was everything, yeah, but that's, I, I wasn't really thinking in any way about Christian at that time. I, I had, there's a lovely phrase the Dalai Lama has, he says, don't make a soup of your practice, Right. Like try and try one diet. <laughs> yeah. Don't be doing two diets. So when when I started practicing Buddhism and became a student with the Panchen Uttal Rinpoche in Bombay, uh, for for a good twenty years, I, I that was my Christianity. My Christi- how did I practice in my Christianity? I I practiced Buddhism, right? So that was that was kind of exercises of meditation, of single pointed meditation, or or reading stuff or whatever. Uh, and that, yeah, I, I don't think I, maybe I wouldn't have got through that period of depression as effectively. Does it ever come back to you? No, it did. Th- there were fragrances of it a few times in the seven years since. You know, like, like I go through a period. No, but I, I remember going through a period once or twice in the spring and I'd find this blackness like, Again, I'd wake in the morning and feel life is meaningless. Is life meaningless? 
No, I don't think it is. But in those moments, I, I, I felt it was. And I think that there were just fragrances of, of what had been there. But I think that I would, I would definitely say for me, my practice in meditation, practice of Buddhism and, and visualizing beautiful visualizations of the Buddha, you know, like the, again, the Buddha stuff is, is beautiful poetry. You know, you visualize the Buddha like uh, Shinrezi. It's the Buddha of infinite compassion. You visualize uh, Manjushri, the Buddha of infinite wisdom. And, and you visualize them from images. And, and then you visualize them as being present in your teacher. And then your teacher, you visualize being present beside your bed. This is a very beautiful, close intimacy. But it, it's using exactly the same brain power. Tell me about the intimacy with your wife. It's, you, it's you, said you, you glow together in bed. It's, using, it it's using the same intimacy and or mind shape that the guy on the phone uses when he's talking to yeah. his beloved. Now, tell you about what? The wife? The intimacy with the wife. You said in bed you, you glow together. We glow together. If if we were purely in the dark in the dark night and you went into the room, you'd see the glow. This is in Leitrim. Yeah, that was a metaphor now. I didn't I mean know. it literally. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but, but you also wrote that you, you with age, but in, we, in a people, I, coexisting in solitude. Maybe people eat so much fish that eventually start yeah. glowing with so much radioactivity in it. Tell me about anyway. coexisting in solitude, the two of you. Yeah, I, I think I, I wrote that unconsciously after a beautiful experience we had in the camper van last summer. And we were up in Carrig Finn and walked on the beach, the Thrawbon. And it's just a beautiful beach. And I lived there years ago for about a year and a half, up there on the beach, just up on a hill beyond the beach. What year was that? Oh, 80. I, I, I can't think. 80, 82 or something. No, later. 92, 87. On your own? I wrote, yeah, I wrote a, a book called The Trouble with Sarah Gullion, a book about the troubles in the North about a man being tortured outside the house. But anyway, uh, I wrote that book up there in solitude and uh, I used to come and go, you know. It was a place to work. It was very intense. So this beautiful place has a lot of memories for me. I, it goes back to my childhood. At 12 years of age, I went to the Gaeltacht in Annegree. Uh, it, it's just such a beautiful place. It's, it's so much part of me. And then for for Cathy, uh, it, it meant an awful lot too. She's an artist, isn't she? Yeah, she's a sculptor. Uh, Cathy Carman. And uh, for, for her own personal reasons, and, and talk to her about them, but I mean, it, it was a beautiful kind of energy in her life, parallel to mine, before we met. And, um, and we had pasts, you know. Like, I mean, she's a sculptor, but she was also married, and she's... She, she had a child when I met her, who's, you know, 21 when we got married. And um, he's Simon Carman, and he's a, a very beautiful sculptor living in Fermanagh. But um, we're up there anyway, and we're walking the beach after a night in the camper van. Now, a Mercedes camper van is a very small little animal. And you try and get into that with the lady wife, you need to be gymnastic, you know, to even get into it. I hope this is a clean story now, is it? This, there's nothing... It's just gymnastics of living in a small space with the lady wife. So you get up in the morning and kind of exhilarated, you know, by that little intensity of the small caravan, camper. And uh, we went for a walk on the beach. And we went the whole length of the beach and the whole way back, which was a good long 40 minutes, 50 minute walk, without saying anything. And yet there was this moment where I knew, I knew her more deeply than I ever did in my life. And we weren't saying anything. And I felt 
she was knowing me. She was, I could feel her knowing the innards of me. And yet we were saying nothing. You also said that she's bore probably more of a mystery to you now than she yeah, than, yeah, than yeah, she because, was when you met yeah, her. Yeah, because you start off with the beloved. You see the beloved. Oh, what beautiful lips. What, what extraordinary fingers. Oh, my God. Oh, I must have this person. I must be with them. I, I want to drown in their life. You know, the beloved is this kind of um, enrapture. Yeah. And I, as you grow, every layer gets deeper and deeper and more complex. And, and there's different colours and some of the colours are utterly, you know, you see, you see a beauty when, you're, when your partner then maybe is having a, a child and through the journey of pregnancy and through the journey of birth, and you see strengths in her that, that as a man you didn't even imagine or know about. So you, you, you're learning, learning. But that, maybe there's dark sides as well. Maybe, maybe there's bits of the awful side of me, the boring side of me that can't stop talking, that, you know, she didn't know the first day she met me. And Tell me th- if th- she had known it, she might have married me, and, and then she had to just live with it. So there's good and bad. You learn about people as you get older as a couple. But eventually you're journeying towards this moment of silence where all the kind of layers But of you do talk, don't you? In the house. Ah, we, we do, in odd time. <laughs> what we, would you we, talk we, about? We have very little to talk about. We have very little. Did you, did you ever see a film? Do you know the great Hungarian uh, filmmaker, Bela Tarr? Yeah. He, he, he is astonishing. And what is it, the, the tango? What's the tango when it's about, about eight hours long? What's it called? Like the Devil's Tango or some crazy name like that. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful art piece. But he did another one, and it's a couple two people and they're living in a little cabin and it's windy outside and every so often they open the door and the wind blows in and they close the door and then they sit down at the table and they start peeling potatoes. Is that you and Cathy and Leitrim? Well, I tell you, they peel the potatoes and it's like very kind of rough. It's like kind of medieval or something, right? And they don't talk to each other at all. And uh, sometimes myself and Cathy would be at the kitchen table and... There wouldn't be a lot of conversation going on and one of us might just say, Bella Tar. <laughs> <laughs> just tell me the funny story. The it's good. Th- I'll tell you another place though. Go on. In The Pearl by John Steinbeck. Yeah. Beautiful opening to that book is your man outside and her inside and they're getting ready breakfast and he's just been fishing or he's thinking of going fishing. And there's so much goes on between those two, the, the man and woman in it and nothing is said, you know, for a couple of pages. They're just living in this silence. So this kind of sense of silence is an intense experience of the beloved. And it's also, you know, they would say, you know, the language of God is silence. But that, that's only to say that everything else is, is nonsense. When you talk about God or use the word God, it's just poppycock. It's it's in the silence is everything, in the not saying, and that is, I say your your child is God, my beloved is God. This is God now. This in moment, here she is. How am I going to do, deal with that? Okay, that's everything. That is eternal life right there. So that is the silence that is God is the beloved. Uh, speaking of your beloved, tell me the funny story. Um, I remember when I met you recently. I made a fool of myself by asking you about. You tell me your wife, she's from uh, Warsaw. 
And you said, no, she's from, uh, because you're always writing about her being from, mm. going to Warsaw. Yeah. What was the time? You, you were in the Abbey some night with her? And so I'll tell you that, will I? Yeah. yeah. Well, for, firstly, to say about her that because she, she is a sculptor uh, and she does figurative work in bronze and wood and this, that and the other, um, she went to Warsaw to explore the whole thing of the medieval way they did icons. So using no artificial things. You know, they use egg yolk and it's called tempera, I think. It's the tradition of, of making colours from stone, natural elements, mixing it with this, that and the other and and, and it's just, just this amazing thing. So she went and therefore she ended up making an icon in the museum in Warsaw. And that meant that she was in Warsaw for about a year. Uh, and she was quite engaged with it and quite engaged over and back and all the rest of it. So there was a lot of times I was writing columns in the Irish Times and I'd be talking about the lady wife was in Warsaw or I went to Warsaw to meet the lady wife, whatever. And so people got the wrong notion that she was from, obviously, Poland. And I was in the Abbey one night and uh, we were at a, an opening of a play and I introduced her because she was standing there and I, I met somebody that didn't know her and I said, oh, this is... Uh, my wife, Cathy, and they said, oh, hello, are you enjoying the play? Because they thought she was, she said, uh, I said, she's from Port Leash. Maybe they, that was because they thought she was from Port Leash. I know, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> Port Leash is very cosmopolitan, I'm by joking, the way. If anyone's no, no, but it is. No, really, in the past 10, 15 years, Port Leash, it needs attention and stand up and take a bow among the nations of the earth. It's so cosmopolitan, it's wonderful. You describe your dad as, as, a, as a ghost. Yeah. Well, what was he like? My father, he was a mystery to me, and maybe I had to construct him. Are you a mystery to your children? Oh, I'd say I am. <laughs> I'd say we all are. But anyway, my father was born in 1903. He was born in very poor Dublin, and he grew up in Donnybrook. His granny was Polish. As it turned out, she was Polish Jew from a place called Lazdige on the Lithuanian border. And I found out all that in a lovely adventure in Poland about four or five years ago. And it ended in the Polish Museum of Jewish History in Warsaw. And I was able to find this woman. This woman whose identity was a mystery, even though my father endlessly talked with love about these two Polish women who came to Dublin. So, because he was very, very poor, he kept a lot of his life hidden. He only married my, my, my mother when he was 50 years of age. Right? And... His ba he was then he had then become an accountant, even though he didn't go to school. You know, he was working class Dublin. He he sold the newspapers in the streets. He only went into college by good doing night school in Ratmines in his late twenties. Correspondence courses with accountancy places in Glasgow, whatever. Eventually, he became an accountant. Eventually, he had a good job as a county accountant in Cavan, but he was fifty, and then he married. So that, that whole half a century was kind of buried in mystery. 
And I think that he didn't like to talk about it because he was afraid in the bourgeois, middle-class Calvin of his time that it wouldn't do him any good. He was almost like a frail man as well, wasn't he? He was a small little man, yeah. He was very frail. He was very, very... Bird-like almost. Yeah, he'd, he'd no... You know, he'd, he'd lost his teeth, he had false teeth. But, I mean, he obviously had very poor beginnings. His, his eyesight was... He could barely see the goggles he used to wear. You know, these huge magnified glasses. And his teeth were all, you know, false. Um, so I'd, I'd say he had a very, very rough childhood. I'd say he didn't want to parade the fact that he didn't go to the posh school, the posh university, and certainly not that his granny was a Jew. There were things now, you might as well, you know, go home from the golf club, I'd say, if you said the wrong thing. In those days, in the 50s, in rural Ireland. So I think for those reasons. But he was also hugely fascinated with religion. Is that, I was going to say, what did you inherit from him? Oh, he, was, he, he, he would describe himself as a thinking Catholic. He'd say there's two types of Catholic, one are devotional and the other is thinking. We're thinking Catholics. So he had Thomas Merton, first edition of Merton's memoir on his desk. He had Ethel Mannon. He had um, Malcolm Muggeridge, all the great converts to Catholicism, which I used to find curious, that he, he, was, he, he was really absorbed with converts to Catholicism. And then he would never go to Mass with us. He'd rarely sit in the seat with us if we went to Mass with the mother. He would, he'd go, he'd say that he didn't, he'd say he got kind of like um, vertigo in a crowd. So he'd sit at the back. So he'd go on his own and he'd sit at the back. But usually what he really liked doing, he used to say to me, was he loved going into the empty church and he'd say there's a presence, a, a, a presence that, you know, the real presence as it used to be called in the old days. There's a presence and that he used to like that. So th- th- he, you had the same solitude? In- yeah, yeah. And, and, in solitude yeah, he, and, and he it was only, but it was only like, um, it was only years later when I read George Steiner that I realised this sense of real presence is number one, a kind of a key idea in Jewish philosophy. And secondly, a wonderful template for understanding art. It's a great book it didn't by George Steiner. The, the heart could do the, the, the thinking and the mind could do the, the feeling. Is, is that the same Steiner? Yeah. Yeah. No, not the Steiner School now. Not I'm, that guy. I'm mixing it up. It's a Van Morrison song, which is quoting Steiner, that if the heart... I wonder, do, yeah, if the it, it sounds close the, enough the, to him, but I think, no, I think that would be this, the other guy. Yeah. Anyway, George Steiner, real presence is, is don't, don't leave the year without that. Don't leave the planet without reading it. It's so prophetic, written about 40 years ago. But anyway, my father seemed to come from a tradition that had no relationship to the devotional clerical dominated Catholicism that was everybody else was being scourged by and my father never in my memory let a, a priest inside the house inside the door but he read one I know but he didn't he wasn't he wasn't too thrilled about that either because to be honest with you it's easy to say that in the first instance in 1971 I went to Maynooth and then left because I saw all the women but to be honest with you... It was more about your father. Well, I would tell you, like these things come up when I remember them, but uh, my father at that time, 1971 in the autumn, when I went to Maynooth to be a priest, he kept sending me advertisements for jobs in the civil service. Junior X, they were called. 
and he'd send me all, all all the time, regular, every month. And he'd have them cut out of the paper and sent, you know, would you not have a look at this? He was really encouraging me not to go there. And I don't know, maybe subliminally, maybe to this moment, that's, that's really a, a factor. Sometimes we don't know our motives for doing things, you know. You think, oh, I left because of women. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you left because your father wasn't giving you the blessing. And the funny thing is that he died in the June or July of 76, and that's when I went back. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, and, but I, I, really, I really sense the ghost was somebody who carried extraordinary memories of a Polish Jewish woman. And I, when I wrote, I wrote a book called Talking to Strangers simply to honour that woman. Marta Frit was her name. Frit, she was anglicised as, but we found her as Marta Frud in uh, in Poland, and uh, she's buried out in um, in um, Dundrum in the Church of Ireland ground there in the Church of Ireland graveyard. I know it actually. Yeah, Michael, it's been amazing talking to you. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, Michael. <laughs>